Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Coming up on the payoff. Cheryl Brown Merriweather is a force of nature, and it was an unbelievable conversation that I just had with her, and I can't wait to share it with you. It's all around addiction, codependency, recovery, and the crisis that is going on now in America and in our world on the back end of COVID that has a lot to do with addiction. Uh, Folks today are calling it substance use disorder. This is an opportunity to get educated and also to get involved. These corporate spaces and workplaces, they a lot of them at least, don't have solutions or information or intel on how to help folks that they work with that have these issues, right? We're talking about the substance use disorder. We're talking about codependency. We're talking about addiction. Uh, The whole thing. Uh, And and Cheryl Merriweather, Cheryl Brown Merriweather, does a great job of taking taking us through this and talks about the solution that we can all help out with. And uh, it's a really cool conversation. She does great work with a company called iCare, and we're going to get into it right now. But first, Kevin Souza. So I, I want to start a little bit with you. When, we, when I had a chance to catch up with you uh, earlier this week, you know, you have direct experience being around alcoholism and addiction as a young person. Uh, walk us through that a little bit. As a young person, as a teenager, as a young adult, and as an adult, gladly. It's called lived experience, Pete. So uh, as a child, I, I grew up in a household with a um, father who suffered from alcohol use disorder. They use different words to describe that back in those days. I grew up thinking he was just And this is a quite unflattering. Some people called him the town drunk. Kids can be very mean when when they see your parents out in public displaying inappropriate behavior. But we've grown now. We call those things alcohol use disorder. And at Mm -hmm. the same time, I my mother struggled with mental health issues. So. In, in the behavioral health world, we talk about dual diagnosis and co-occurring. I had co-occurring, but they were co-occurring in two different people, my mother and my father. So that was my family of origin as a, as a only child in that environment. The patterns that I became exposed to, the survival techniques that I mastered as a child, followed me throughout my life. And I've actually learned that there's a term for that. As an adult now, I'm called an ACOA. 
in case your listeners don't know what that is, that's the adult child of an alcoholic parent. I add the P there. But yeah, those early lived experiences affected me throughout my life. Um, and when I experienced uh, individuals within my circle of influence who struggled from substance use disorder or behavioral addictions, I thought they were normal. And I had to learn about something called codependency and work through navigating that within myself. But it has all worked together for good, Pete. I now am able to use everything that I've experienced along the way, along with my education and my training and the work that I do to now help others at least break the silence and be willing to talk about some of these things because it's a scary topic. Yeah, Cheryl, not only are you like educated through, th you know, all, like officially, right? Like to, to do all the work that you do, but that lived experience you talked about, you're uniquely qualified mm -hmm. to help someone else who is going through the same things that you went through. Mm -hmm. What were some of those things as far as your development was concerned, being in an environment like that? How did it affect you uh, growing up as a young woman? Well, it affected me initially by the fact that you believe those things are normal, right? So you're in an unhealthy environment and you don't even realize it. On some level you do, you know, there's, this doesn't feel good, but, you know, and you grow up as a child saying, I will never, I will never do these things or be around these people, but subconsciously, and I don't know all the psychology of it, but we do tend to recreate patterns that are normal to us. And so as I learned coping skills, and that's the key word, Pete, our coping skills, as I went through my teenage, adolescence, young adulthood, in whatever life circumstance I encountered as, as a wife, as a mother, as an employee, sometimes in stressful workplaces, there are circumstances and events that are uncomfortable, that are stressful, that cause one to be anxious and or depressed. I'm just keeping it real. So when those things happen, what do we do? We seek to cope. We either seek to you know, drown the pain by something that's pleasurable, or we use those uh, substances and other unhealthy behaviors just as a coping mechanism. And what I have learned through my education and training is that those are the things that are the early stages of what we now know as these disorders, alcohol use disorder and or mental health disorders. And that's why you often hear professionals who work in these industries use the terms co-occurring because where you see mental health stress, anxiety, depression, suicidal tendencies, those terrible, destructive mental health criteria, if you will, you also see misuse of substances or other what can become addictive behaviors. They are co-occurring. And we see that more frequently now because the world in which we live is on fire. Yeah. And people are desperate for relief 
and they find relief however they can. And sometimes those things can progress to the point where they can meet clinical definitions of disorders. It's really, when you talk about the fact that it's fascinating, but it's scary, right? Like you, you grow up, because I was an, a child of an alcoholic, and you know that is what you become accustomed to. So you find yourself in relationships that can be unstable. Um, and for me, probably different than, than you maybe, you know, I was always an alcoholic and an addict or from, from the moment I was putting substances in my body. So I was just as responsible uh, as the person I was with. Right. But as someone who is a codependent, right. Um, and, and, and you mentioned that <laughs> you raise your hand when you mentioned that, was there a moment for you when you noticed, okay, I've got to break this cycle. I've got to snap this. Uh, and if there was, what was that? Oh, it's a great question. And I often tell the story. I had volunteered, having worked at AT&T for many years as a manager in a training and development function or role. Uh, I was leaving AT&T on a buyout. I had a chance to leave with some things, some benefits to make me go away. But I volunteered at the organization that I now work at, which is I Care. And I said, I can write and help with training course development. Let me help as a volunteer. And little did I know at that time that our president and, and founder, Dr. Jean LaCour, had written a book, published a book on codependency. I, did, I had heard the word P, but had no clue what it was. So I'm on a road trip with her to go talk to someone about creating a training program. And in the time I was going through a really bad situation in my marriage because I was married to a man who had some serious behavioral addictions. And I'm talking about him, talking about him, he this, he that. And she said, clear as day, stop. I don't want to hear another word about him. We're going to talk about you. And my response, Pete, was I'm fine. <laughs> I'm not the one with the problem. <laughs> it's all yeah. him. And she started to talk to me and teach me about codependency. And she gave me her book to read. And I, I became, oh, my gosh, so much aware of the fact that, and I now tell people, I'm the poster child for codependency. But thank goodness I'm in recovery. <laughs> Once I learned out about what it was, became aware, and awareness is very important in all of these things that we're talking about today, just raising awareness and creating safety around these conversations. But I began to learn, and I tell people jokingly now, I said, I was going to fix it even if it killed me. <laughs> and it almost did. Yeah. But that's one of the characteristics of a codependent, and it's one of the characteristics of the ACOA, the adult child of an alcoholic parent. We want to clean it up, fix it up, make it look good, you know, so that it's as much as we can make it to be covered up and hidden from, you know, the, the judgment and, and the stigma that others would lay on us because of these things. So, but I'm I, I, in I, recovery now. <laughs> I, I, I so appreciate you being revealing and vulnerable. And, and we're going to talk more about eye care and, and dry January and what you're doing to help people in the workplace. But I want to kind of finish up your story because it is so interesting and for people who don't know, I just want to tap into your reservoir of experience. What is a codependent? A codependent whose drug of choice is helping the 
person struggling with the addiction or or the you know use disorder if you will and we become enmeshed one with another so our worlds revolve around one another's behaviors and managing one another's behaviors there's another term that uh, individuals may be more familiar with and we talk about enabling so you are so enmeshed in this addictive behavior that this other person is is engaged in that you really, you know, you go back and forth between I can't live without them because they need me, right? Or I'm here to help them because they can't help themselves. But we are aligned, enmeshed with one another, and my behavior is governed by theirs, and in many ways, their behavior is governed by mine. So, I mean, I mean, but that is really what it is, and it's a fascinating thing because, to your point, it plays out through relationships throughout our lives, and until we recognize it and know what it is, and I'm talking about myself, I tell people I have a full-time job keeping myself straight because I'm always, now that I'm aware of these tendencies, I'm always examining myself to see if I am behaving in a situation in a manner that is not healthy. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, there are boundaries. We learn about boundaries and, and I to help other people understand, yes, I can do this, but no, I can't do that. So, all of this training and education that I've learned about this disease of substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, and all of the other use disorders has been life-changing and transformational for me and for millions of other people around the world who are in recovery. And that's the work that I enjoy doing. And I'm so grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it with your listeners. Oh, of, of course. And, and I think it's a really, like I said, it's a fascinating topic because I consider myself to be a codependent uh, or have been. I'm, 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 I, try, I, I think I'm in recovery, but I'm working on it. It's day by day. You talked about your relationship. How did you, you know, you're riding in the car mm-hmm. with the, you know, the woman from I Care who wrote the book, Yes. Um, how were you able to, because in the rooms of uh, recovery, we mm-hmm. talk openly about, hey, yes. for lack of a better term, we took hostages, right? We yep. didn't have relationships. Yep. We, we end up with these people in our lives who are codependents and uh-huh. enable us more often than not. How did uh-huh. you break free uh, from Six being years. on the other side of that, fr- from being a codependent? Six years. It took me about six years of working on me. Once she told me, stop looking at the other person and examine myself, I she connected me with the group. And it really was a process that I really went through in six years. I read a lot of books. <laughs> I'm an <laughs> educator. <laughs> you know, I yeah. like to read. I read a lot about these things. And I joined groups. You know, yes. we re- community is so important. I thought I was the only one. Pete. And she introduced me and connected me with recovery communities, <laughs> one particularly for my type of struggle, the behavioral addiction that my husband was was struggling with. It not only included the individuals struggling with that, but their family. And many recovery communities are incorporate not only the individuals struggling with the disorder, but their families as well. And then I did some one-on-one work 
with a counselor or a therapist and ultimately a coach, who I talk a lot about the role of recovery coaches in the work that I do, but it takes a community. It takes a tribe. It takes a group of people who understand and care enough to want to support others. And that is the greatest joy of my life now as I work with hundreds of people who have navigated their own journey and who now want to turn around and give back and help others because it's hard work. I may be smiling today, but in the middle of that, it was not fun. I describe it, Pete, as like going through surgery without anesthesia. It was a very painful, long six-year journey for me as a codependent to learn about this because I love people who struggle with substance use disorder and mental health issues. So I had to learn both sides of the behavioral health coin. I tell people there are two sides of the same coin. Substance use disorders on one side and mental health is on the other side together. They're under the umbrella of behavioral health. Mm. And that is the area of work that I now do. And I'm not alone. There's so many amazing, wonderful people like you also (laughs) doing this work. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. Now, do you, in your own experience now, the work you're doing with eye care, does that fuel your recovery now? I would imagine, because now here you are carrying this message and Mm -hmm. you mentioned the communities. Now you're a key part, a key component of these communities. Does that continue to help you heal and keep you vigilant every day? Yes, it does. And and I'll share briefly why that is. Because recovery is holistic, right? When we talk about people going into treatment, they do the biopsychosocial, you know, evaluation, but it's a holistic disorder. It's mind, body, spirit. It affects every area of a, of a person's life. And so does recovery. There's these dimensions of recovery that are holistic. So it's an ongoing lifelong journey to continue to strengthen the whole being. And in the work that we're doing, particularly now in the post-COVID era, I have the uh, tremendous opportunity to work with health and wellness coaches, as well as mental health practitioners and many others but I'm particularly benefited personally in my recovery by the work that we do with health and wellness coaches, because I'll be on calls with them and they'll say, you've been, when was the last time you went outside and took a break? Because I can, here I am, the ACOA again, right? Workaholic, workaholic, workaholic. I can work an 18 hour day, seven days in a row. But that is part of my recovery is learning to break those patterns that are unhealthy in all areas of my life. So the coaches that I work with, as well as some of the mental health practitioners that have come to us and are adding some of the things that we're doing on the substance use disorder We are a community and we reach out and care enough about one another to challenge one another when we notice what we perceive may be an unhealthy pattern or unhealthy behavior. And it allows us to continue to sharpen the saw. That's a 
uh, seven habits of highly effective people. If you are familiar with that from the corporate space, one of those seven habits is sharpen the saw. And it basically means as long as you live, you're continuing to try to improve. And the health and wellness coaches and the many other amazing individuals that I work with on the clinical side, as well as non-clinical professionals and health and wellness folks. But we just care enough about one another to allow us to continue to pursue long-term, lifelong recovery and sobriety. That's a part of the journey also. And sobriety extends beyond just substances. Sobriety it relates to mental clarity and the things with which we can sometimes become distracted and that become unhealthy, that cause us to lose focus and the ability to be present with people in real time. So again, it's all these little things that are part of a lifelong journey to achieve sobriety and sustain long-term recovery. A lot of the work you're doing at iCare to help people sustained long-term recovery is you're, you're in that corporate space, right? Where you're going in and you're trying to help folks that are struggling with this. And for you and I who kind of maneuver in this area of recovery, uh, whether it's codependency or sobriety or some of the other addictions we're talking about, is it how foreign is it to some of these folks, right? That I, I've noticed that some people don't even understand that the resources are there. Right. Um, so when they someone like you comes along, uh, it's an eye-opening experience for some folks, I would imagine, in the the corporate space, too. Oh, absolutely. But it's funny that you say that. Everyone knows someone who struggles with a use disorder. We just don't talk about it in the corporate space, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm also an HR practitioner, so I'm still a practicing HR professional, the past president of our local SHRM affiliate chapter here in Central Florida. I still train HR professionals uh, to become certified HR professionals. And we've now started training through iCare HR professionals and managers and others in the workplace. And the first thing that we train them is you know, to, to break the silence. How do you break the silence around this scary thing that no one wants to talk about. And when we create enough psychological safety in small groups, and we can form small groups online, as well as in a live experience, but we create safety. And guess what? We tell instructors, facilitators, we share our stories And people look at us and say, oh, my gosh, I would never look at you now and know that you went through all of that. Mm -hmm. And when we do create that safety and begin to share and talk about our experience and our experience in the workplace in navigating through these things, people will raise their hand and say, me too, or I know someone, or I worked with someone, or I am in. I've had senior level people, Pete, say, I've been in recovery for 13 years and no one knows it. Yeah. Because I don't talk about it. I don't feel safe to talk about it in the workplace. I'll tell you something that you're doing too with the HR, and it brings up my own personal experience of mine. When I was deep in my addiction, I had a job I was working for, an NBA organization and I was in free fall and you know, they eliminated my position, but really what they did was eliminate me. And that was a consequence ultimately looking back that I needed. 
Um, and I've worked through any kind of resentments I, I had in that area because I am responsible for my mm-hmm. behavior. Now, part of that was I do sometimes think, you know, they weren't educated on what I was going through. If, if somebody had been like, hey, you need to go to a treatment facility. You, it's clear that, are you struggling with this? You know, if someone from the HR side had been like, some, is everything okay with this guy? Why is he? You know, these are, these are certain symptoms of, right, alcohol use disorder or addiction. But nobody knew any better. Nobody's right. fault, really. I'm the accountable one. I right. had the behavior, and I needed the consequence to ultimately get sober. But I sometimes do think, what would have happened uh-huh. if someone would have – would I have maybe gotten off the train earlier? Didn't happen like that. It's all good. But I do think about that, and I, and I think that's why it's so important you're doing what you're doing because you can save folks some of the pain. Mm-hmm. And also, we're in a world now where the addiction is so strong on people that it's killing people. Right. Uh, right? By, by, by the yeah. day. So, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes that um, period of time where – we say in an addiction, you go out and do more research, right? Well, that research can kill you. So it's so important what you're doing, bringing this to, because a lot of folks in that corporate space, they may know somebody, but they don't, they're not educated on how to deal with, with an addict that works for them. Exactly. Well, and you know, this is such an exciting time. If you just let me share with you some of the exciting, hot off the press news that's happening to change that first of all, HR, we know people are not comfortable going to HR. They're just (laughs) not. And to our credit as an HR practitioner, we may know signs and symptoms, but with since COVID, with so many people working remotely, how many times do you get a chance to smell the liquor on someone's breath or hear the slurred speech or see the redness of the eyes? We don't get the same signs and symptoms in this new virtual environment that, is that a we great did in the point. old days. That is a great point. I mean, it is. So, but the, in recognition of one other thing that you mentioned, people are dropping dead but now in large part by accidental poisonings related to fentanyl. So in the workplace, what we need more than anything in the workplace can be remote and virtual is just a discussion, a conversation about these things so that people can safely learn about these things and share what they are learning with others, with their teenage kids or college age kids or spouses or partners or in the faith community. But if I learn because my awareness has been raised, then I can, first of all, begin to pay attention to my own actions as well as the actions of others by sharing this. So the trends that are happening now have been to incorporate peer level support for these initiatives in the workplace. Now in the clinical world, we know the role and value of peers and recovery communities and groups and those types of things. People over decades have get swear their lives have been saved by 12 step and other groups and other communities and other tribes, virtual or live. But we're now moving those into the workplace through what some may know as employee resource groups. I know you spoke to Dana Piscopo about oh, yeah. nine months ago, and she talked about the work that she's done in Oracle. And, but there, was a, and the, there was a woman before that 
who I spoke with, Marin Nelson, who was Marin doing that. Nelson Salesforce, yeah. Dana at Oracle. We are talking to folks at Cisco and we're talking to folks at Wayfair. Wayfair started a group called Way Sober, and I think they changed the name. But you know, but these are employer sanctioned groups, but they are employee led groups. So whereas an individual is not comfortable going to human resources, they will reach out and feel comfortable to participate in a lunch and learn or a group discussion with peers. There are some 24 million people in this country who are in recovery, who are working who can be added to the resource group of individuals who can support folks around these issues, either helping to connect them with resources within the workplace or within the community or online. And the support for that now is coming from the federal government through what they call recovery ready workplace initiatives and they the federal government has now partnered with recovery friendly workplace initiatives which were started by governor sununu in new hampshire sure the recovery friendly initiatives have now expanded nationwide so the federal government recovery ready has gotten married with and put the money behind the partnership with the recovery-friendly community of practice. And starting this year, they have established a national recovery-friendly workplace institute. They're forming it now, and it will provide a systematic approach by which companies can raise the level of awareness and provide more support, more access, more resources to support the workplace and those within the workplace who may just be sober curious, wanting to learn more about these things, who may be in recovery and want to maintain their long-term recovery and help by giving back to help others understand these things. So we now have the support at the federal level, state level, and workplace level, and individual level, all coming together across all industries and bringing together the recovery community with human resource, health and wellness folks, professional coaches, recovery coaches, and the mental health community. The collaborations and the cooperation, the synergy that we are all creating by working together is the most exciting thing that I have seen in the last 10 or 20 years of my career in doing this work. You do a great job of explaining this, and, and you you really do because I I need the clear cut definitions of stuff, and I, and I'm comprehending, so that's always a good sign. Uh, how does I care get involved in all of this? Well, I care does training, and I care does certification programs for the workforce. Initially, that is how we started. We provided training for clinical professionals who often will get professionally licensed or certified through a state certification board. 
So we're in Florida. We started by training the clinical workforce on the uh, substance use disorder side of the house and behavioral health practitioners here in Florida through one of our three divisions, which is called NET Training Institutes, 501c3 nonprofit educational institution. So we still train and provide ongoing continu continuing education training for clinical practitioners. But about 10 years, 13 years ago, we started a second division to train coaches. So clinical practitioners use different techniques, focus on different things than do coaches. The coaching industry, instead of trying to figure out what caused you to be where you are, we focus more as coaches on let's hold, let's set some goals and through accountability, help you move forward to accomplish your goals. So we created a second division of our institute called the IAPRC, International Association of Professional Recovery Coaches. We created the recovery coaching specialty that has been recognized within the coaching industry by the ICF, International Coaching Federation, and we train life coaches and health and wellness coaches and divorce coaches. There are professional co executive coaches. There are professional coaches out there who run across people all the time who may be struggling with substance use disorder and they flat out don't know how to address those topics and work with those clients around those issues. Now they do. They come to us. They go through a program of training that meets ICF professional standards. They become certified as certified professional recovery coaches. They're working in a non-clinical space. Most of them are self-employed. They're creating their own businesses. They're transforming lives. And I Care provides, again, the training and the support and the certification for those coaches. But my coaches, Pete, I've got airline pilots, I've got <laughs> nurses, I've got school teachers, government bureaucrats, HR people, attorneys. They said to us, hey, we'd really like to go back into the workplace with some training. We can want to talk to our managers. We want to do lunch and learns around these things that we've learned. So their request formed the beginning of our what is our now third division, which is became the brand, I Care, the uh, International Center for Addiction and Recovery Education. We have a workforce solutions division that through which we provide the peers, we can provide the coaches, and now we train and certify addiction awareness facilitators who go into either communities or workplaces with tools to provide education and raise awareness and create safety for conversations so that people can explore this thing, talk about this thing and get help before they crash and burn. Mm -hmm. And that is how we advanced into the workplace. And I say, if there was only one, only one silver lining that came from COVID, because 99% of it was destructive, disruptive, devastating, 
But one silver lining is it has brought the awareness of the need for these conversations and these resources to be openly available in the workplace and to train a community uncover. If you're familiar with DEI, we talk about covering people hiding in the workplace. We uncover a brand new workforce of people who care about these issues, have that lived experience, but also can complement what is already there through existing benefit programs, through existing health and wellness programs, to give and support extra help to the HR people who need all the help they can get these days. So we're creating a non-clinical workforce of trained and certified professionals who can do this work in the workplace, in the community, and many of them are adding it as a gig on the side and making a little supplemental income, <laughs> starting their own businesses as professionals doing this work. They're writing so, books, so somebody they're like me, podcasts, cool <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so somebody like me, who's uh, a broadcaster, I yep. host this podcast, yep. I could reach out to iCare, yes. become versed in this coaching space, and then I could go ahead and be used by the company that I work for, right? My television yes. company yes. or or the sports uh, broadcasting yes. company I work for. And I could go into that field yes. and I could help them and nurture that space. Yes, we're talking to, uh, we are talking to a couple of chaplains who work with first responders, right? Yeah. So if you're a first responder, an EMT, a fire person, a police person uh, on the border, we're talking with a company is partnering with us who's working to support the folks on the border, the workforce, they're struggling. These folks are under great distress and they may not be comfortable with their peers necessarily knowing that they're struggling with some of these issues. They certainly may not be comfortable to go to HR and say, hey, you know, I'm having a hard time. But they will trust in a chaplain. They will trust a union steward. They will trust a peer to go to and say, I'm struggling with some of these issues. What can I do? How can I get help? And the goal for us is to find that one recovery hero, recovery champion, recovery advocate or ally. We know about allies, but someone who cares enough about this, who can get trained and certified and credentialed to, with integrity, say, I will help by becoming the point person to address this issue in the workplace by creating sustainable programs, either to complement existing things. And most of these things don't cost a lot of money because they already have health and wellness programs. They just can't get in touch with the person to get the appointment to yeah. go through and you know connect on their shift with the mental health professional. So the resource that is in-house can say, but there are online communities that you can connect with. There are within our local community, some recovery communities that you can connect with discreetly. So it has to come. These things are, again, company sanctioned, but they are employee led. 
And that is why they are so effective and growing at such a fabulous rate, because everyone appreciates the value of the need for a change in the conversation and the culture in the workplace around these issues. And because it's on fire, it's yeah. all hands on deck. <laughs> let's show it, it up is on and fire. let's work together. <laughs> it is on fire. And this is the last personal note. You know, I am involved with a couple of big corporate entities and we had a, let's call it a kerfuffle with somebody recently. And it was around, you know, addiction and nobody knew what the hell, hell to do. N nobody knew what to do. And somebody talked to me about it because they knew I was in recovery, but there wasn't any like concise conversation and concise action steps. Every, everybody, honestly, everybody's a little scared. Uh, how do I handle this? How do the, you know, like, cause in a corporate environment, people don't, you know, some people don't, people want to keep their jobs. They don't want to, you know, do anybody uh, or do anything that could be looked upon as, okay, like I cut this person's feet out from under them or I didn't take care of their mental health yeah. or, or maybe I crossed them. Maybe I let them go and I didn't give them the help that they needed. So this is a, a great conversation to have before I let you go. I know I just have a little more time and I'll put all the links to eye care in, in the show notes. Cause this is an amazing conversation. It's still January, yes. dry January. Yes. People are in the middle of it. Some people may have given up on it. Some people, whatever. What are your thoughts on it? I, I know you have some really interesting takes on this. I am a pro dry January person. I'm a pro sober September, so sober October. And the main reason why it's interesting you say that I just <laughs> was featured in an article where the subject was why dry January is not a good idea. I read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, and the benefit of it is awareness. You know, it really is intended to just create the conversation so much uh, around the, what the world in which we live now, the digital media driven world is just raising awareness, you know, being able to influence ideas and those types of things. So it creates a conversation about this topic. And it, no one is really advocating for you to absolutely just go cold turkey. And I mean, that's kind of what the purpose is to be intentional and aware of your behavior. Right. And so start somewhere. And so this is a call to action to take a step to raise your own awareness about your own behavior. And that is the greatest benefit that I see for having the conversation, having the month dedicated to raising awareness of this topic. And dry January, again, at the end of the day, and why I mentioned the health and wellness coaches and benefit programs and all these things, we are individuals whose health, if we don't have our health, we will suffer, our loved ones will suffer, and our legacy and future generations will suffer. And I'll say this last point, which is the key benefit for me of a dry January and these awareness issues. Awareness, Pete, falls under the category of prevention. In behavioral health, in healthcare systems, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I refer people to a letter that was written by the American Hospital Association 
to both houses of Congress in December of 2022. Your listeners can Google it. It was written by the American Hospital Association to Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, and Mitch McConnell. And it said the be the healthcare system in general is broken. The treatment systems are overwhelmed in this post-COVID era, particularly as it relates to behavioral health. There are not enough mental health practitioners. There are not enough substance use disorder treatment practitioners out there. The, it takes a long time to train one, to mm. go through education and training and licensure and sit for exams and get up to speed in the clinical space. The system is overwhelmed. So if the treatment systems are not there, how do we answer this call to action? It has to be prevention. We have to catch people, turn them around through the adoption of healthy practices before they need clinical treatment because they've had some traumatic or terrible incidents. I tell people when they've crashed and burned. And the number one area of focus for prevention is awareness. We have to raise awareness, create conversations, create psychological safety for those conversations so that people can find themselves in there, find themselves and their loved ones and reach out for help before those loved ones crash and burn. And in the case of the fentanyl epidemic, before they die from mm. an accidental overdose of something, they did not even know what they were taking. So that is what dry January means to me. It creates a month long conversation about a substance, but we can go dry from other things, can't we? Dry from social media, except yes. your podcast. We want them to listen to your podcast. <laughs> yes. But when we train people on this, this disorders, we, our coaches not only focus on alcohol, but they learn about behavioral addictions. The brain does not know the difference between a substance and an unhealthy behavior. The progression to the addiction cycle happens with unhealthy behaviors in the same manner that it does with substances. So some of our coaches focus on working with clients around food addiction. Mm. Others work with clients around sexual addiction or gambling. So, and with marijuana, cannabis, and now we have the psychedelics coming back on the scene, 1970s, <laughs> here we go again, right? <laughs> but we need an army of trained people who can talk about these things and help others to become informed, raise awareness, and Dry January contributes significantly to that. So thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it during dry January. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely timely. And, and I really like what you said. An ounce of awareness is worth a pound of cure. And, you know, I think that's something we can kind of wrap up with. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I so appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to mention about I Care, about your mission, where people can find you? Just that we are, because we are, currently a small nonprofit organization, we grow through referrals, 
through distribution partnership arrangements. You know, we have affiliates who help promote what we're doing and they can get paid for helping to promote what we do. We have distribution partners out there helping to let some others know, you know, in mass, if you have a group of people who would benefit from some of these programs, let me connect you with eye care. And we, that's how we get the word out because other types of advertising are expensive and, you know, we have to allocate and use our resources very wisely. So it takes a village, a tribe, a community, and we welcome uh, those who would come with us who share our philosophy and our mission and want to do this work with us to help others know that they can come to us as well. Because the last thing I'll say is I go, it's like, I don't know, You can, it, there's a starfish story. I first heard about it as uh, through Chicken Soup for the Soul years mm. ago. But because I live in Florida, I appreciate the starfish story because there are beaches in Florida, we're peninsula, and sometimes there are starfish that come up on the beaches and if you don't do something with them, the sun hits them and they die. And this story basically says that there's an older person on the beach one morning and he sees a younger person coming in the other direction. The beach is covered with starfish. And as they get closer to one another, the older person sees the young person picking up the starfish and throwing them into the water. And it's like, why are you doing that? I mean, the, you look around the beach, there are thousands of starfish out here. And the young person says, well, the sun will come up and kill them. I can't save them all. But he picks up one, throws it into the water and said it made a difference for that one. And that's the work that we're all about here because the problem is so massive. It's so huge. Mental health, substance use disorder in this post-COVID, what is now in the dictionary called perma-crisis world. We live in a perma-crisis world, state of permanent crisis we can't solve all the problems, but each one of us can do little things that make a difference in the life of one person, one at a time. It's like the ripple on the pond. It spreads and it grows out and makes an impact to the individual, to their family, to their coworkers, to their community. We've trained coaches from 41 nations. We're small but we're having a global impact by training one individual at a time to go and do this work. And that's what we're about. And we welcome others who share that philosophy and want to do this work. Go save a life. Hey, Cheryl, thank you so much. And I, I have a feeling this is not going to be the last time we talk. I'll probably be connecting with you after this online, uh, offline. And I'll, uh, I'll send you this link when the podcast goes up. It'll probably be next Tuesday morning, afternoon. Well, I celebrate you and I thank you for the work that you're doing to raise awareness around these issues. And I will always be here to support you. And I thank you for doing what you're doing to support us. It means a lot. Yeah, you're the real deal, Cheryl. I really appreciate your time. It was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Pete. All right, you take care. All right. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This 
has been a Rogue Media Network production. Thank you.